The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello, I'm Angus Colwell, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue of the magazine. This week, Melvin Bragg reads his diary, Svetlana Morinette on Why Ukrainians Fight, Matthew Paris defends Carrie Johnson, and Lionel Shriver on the madness of central banks. First up is Melvin Bragg. In 1977, when I set up the South Bank show for ITV, I wanted Paul McCartney to be on the first programme. His unique talent apart, I thought he would be the key to unlocking one of my chief aims in the new programme, which was to disrupt the accepted order of play in which classical music, ballet and opera were at the top of the pyramid, while down at the bottom was pop music. McCartney took some netting, but he came on and we met at Abbey Road Studios at about midnight and the programme was launched. Not without criticism, but the Daily Telegraph critic, for example, wrote that as far as arts programmes were concerned, he drew the line at Lennon McCartney. Those were the days. Clive James saw what the programme was trying to do and backed it, and that was vital. 45 years on, pop music is now well dug in as one of the major creative springs in the arts, and at 80 years old, even more impossibly handsome, relentlessly prolific and immovably grounded, McCartney still seems to be a ruler in that world. His lyrics now run alongside contemporary poetry, his music is orchestrated, but above all, the songs go on, and so does he. Who would have thought that an eight-year-old would dominate festivals and television as he's done over these past few weeks? What happened to 64? Hunter Davis, author of 103 books, wrote the first full biography of the Beatles in the 1960s. His most recent book is on Hampstead Heath, that postage-stamped Lake District that is a unique, complex open space in a world city. Hunter points out in his book that again and again this, for a city, vast heathland has been saved by obstinate and far-sighted individuals are prepared to be awkward. We need people like that again now. Developers are on the march. It seems that the best way to get what you want is not to apply for permission, but just go ahead, do what you want, and hope that a council which does not have resources will give retrospective permission to what has been done unlawfully. In the neighbourhood, for instance, I know that very extensive excavation and landscaping have taken place in a large back garden, with at least a hundred skips of soil being removed. Flats have been turned into short-term letting apartments, and much else. It's odd to see the law being ignored in what I still believe is essentially a law-abiding country. It's difficult for me not to compare this recklessness to England 1945 to 1958, the timescale for my memoir, Back in the Day, which is set in the small town of Wickton. Wickton is essentially a market town, but has two small factories, 5,000 people then, 12 places of worship, and most of all, for myself, my friends, and everyone from my background, an astonishing Alibaba's cave of hobbies. The often numbing, ill-paid, repetitive work was overlaid with layers of wonderful local examples of these passionate private pursuits. 
There were dogs of dozens of varieties, including those who wanted crops, church choirs, school choirs, town choirs, a cycling club, a swimming club, football, rugby, cricket, tennis, the scouts and the guards, mini copses of allotments, of course, regular dances and socials. There were fights in pubs and at the dances, sometimes on Saturday nights, and by contemporary standards, some of the accommodation was near intolerable. But the people came out of two world wars and an economic breakdown to build what became a better place. This book is a memoir and not a social history. Yet as I was writing the story of my time, it seemed England then had great stoicism and deeply textured attachment to community. The problem is this sort of stuff can run into a blizzard of nostalgia. But there were differences, and it's sometimes hard to remember that we live in the same country as back then. This is the last week for this season's run of BBC Radio 4's In Our Time. Rarely has there been a more misleading title. One of our rules is to be never knowingly relevant. Another is to rove wherever we choose, from the Far East to medieval Europe to ancient worlds, from astrophysics to philosophy to religion, each time guided by three outstanding academics. We now bring in contributors from all over the world, and a panel can regularly include people from Washington and Germany, as well as British universities. Simon Tillotson, the producer, and I take great pleasure in hopping from Mao to Dylan Thomas to Chinese warlords to key points in religious history. When it came up at the BBC after I left Start the Week, I was offered rather gingerly a six-month contract. We had been going now for 24 years, and the podcast seems to whiz around the world like Ariel. I can't think of any other broadcasting institution in the world that will put on, sustain, and nourish such a programme. That was Melvin Bragg. Next, it's Svetlana Morinets. Two months ago, I became one of the 80,000 Ukrainian refugees who have settled in Britain. The kindness I've been shown by my host family and so many others has been overwhelming. People are caring but curious too. They ask how long Zelensky will really fight for, by which I suspect they mean, surely you guys don't think you can actually win? Why prolong the bloodshed? It's a good question. By some estimates, nearly 80% of the Russian army is in my country right now. We are tiny by comparison with Russia and fighting alone, though we donated weapons. Officially, up to 1,000 Ukrainian soldiers are killed or wounded each day in eastern Ukraine. Unofficially, many more. My father, who is 53, could be called up any time. My 7-year-old brother is still at home. Why don't I long for a ceasefire? Why doesn't Zelensky? To understand Ukraine and the president's position, you need to understand that war is not new to us. We have been at war for 8 years, with 45,000 killed. It's a struggling death toll which, in towns like mine, has meant the regular arrival of bodies brought back for burial. In the hope of ending the fighting, Ukraine has tried trusting Russia and agreeing a truce. We have learned the hard way about Putin's agenda, that he sees our independence as anomaly, our culture as a threat to be wiped out. I was just a teenager during the events that started this war in November 2013. At that time, Ukraine wanted to straighten ties with the EU and the President Viktor Yanukovych had promised to do so. 
but at the last minute he changed his mind and announced closer ties with Moscow instead. He perhaps thought, as some in Europe seem to do now, that Ukrainians would go along with the, whatever the president decides. Instead, there was a mass revolt. A million marched in Kyiv to protest on behalf of European values and against the Kremlin's protege. This was the so-called Maidan Revolution. Snipers led by Vladislav Surkov, Putin's advisor, massacred almost 100 people. But rather than the protests being quelled, they intensified. On 22nd February 2014, Yanukovych fled Kyiv. It was an empowering moment for Ukraine, but also a moment of vulnerability. With no one in charge in Kyiv, Putin's forces occupied Crimea, which he used as a base to invade Donbass, and Ukraine was at war. The fighting has never stopped since. At that time, I was at school in Poninka, three hours from Kyiv and some 600 miles from the front. At break time, we would wave camouflage nets to disguise tanks. At home, my mother would knit socks for the soldiers and collect food and warm clothes. My history teacher, who had been a father figure to me, was called up. He returned a year later a broken man, unable to recover from the horrors of the war that almost no one in Europe seemed to know was being fought. Then came Volodymyr Zelensky. His election in 2019 may seem bizarre. Why would a comedian-turned-actor with no political experience be chosen as a president? But that was the point, to have new faces in the government untainted by corruption. He wanted to negotiate a deal with Russia and stood on a platform of ending the war. I voted for him as a gamble, taking a risk on a dreamer who wanted peaceful negotiations. For one brief moment, there was hope of a breakthrough when talks led to 35 Ukrainian captives being returned. But during further negotiations, Putin built up troops around the borders and it soon emerged that the talks had been an illusion. It seemed to Ukrainians that Zelensky was out of his depth, at risk of being duped by Moscow. In February of this year, his approval ratings plunged to 24% and it looked as he might be overthrown. Had he made any concessions to Putin, he very possibly would have been. Zelensky faces the same risk now. If he agrees to a ceasefire that hands over Ukrainian's territory, he would probably be removed at the first opportunity by a country that has shown its ability to overthrow presidents. Public opinion is firmly behind fighting on in the belief that any deal with Putin would turn us into a slave state and peace would mean giving Russia a chance to rearm and return. Polls also show that most Ukrainians think victory is not just possible, but likely. That might sound hybristic, even naive, but what are the other options? We have, after all, seen where a deal with Putin leads. Concessions were offered in August 2014, but Russia broke the agreements and started shooting at retreating Ukrainian troops at Ilovaisk. That massacre, now commemorated every year, forced Kyiv to negotiate on Putin's terms, creating the notorious Minsk agreements, whereby the EU effectively agreed to let him keep Crimea. 
So we don't need to guess what he would do if given another slice of Ukraine. He would do what he did after he failed to occupy the whole Donbass and Luhansk regions in 2014. Return with a stronger army. I'm sometimes asked if I hope for a truce, if only so my father will not be conscripted. The idea of him fighting terrifies me. I don't want to imagine my little brother growing up without a father. But nor do I want him to grow up in a Ukraine whose culture and language are being erased, its women abused and its people enslaved. If this sounds harsh, then consider what we have seen already. In Bucha, civilians were massacred and women raped. Donbass is now a bombed-out wasteland. Children in newly occupied eastern Ukraine are being enlisted in the Russian cadet corps. In Mariupol, a Moscow-dictated school curriculum has been introduced. If a deal grants Putin control on southern Ukraine, we will lose a third of our economy. My parents and countless other Ukrainians will live in poverty, watching their country fall apart. So that's why we fight. The war has inflicted an unspeakable toll and Putin has made sure that every Ukrainian has someone to mourn for. But the last poll showed that 78% are still against any concessions. I won't list all of my friends who have died in these 8 years. But all of them were killed because they were defending their right to be free, to join Europe and NATO and to choose the best for their country and their children. Ukraine isn't running out of soldiers. Volunteers are not just queuing up at military recruitment centers, but in some cases trying to bribe their way in. Civilians have something to protect and are ready to die for it. The problem isn't resolve or manpower, but weapons. Just 10% of the arms Ukraine has asked for have been delivered. The Ukrainian army uses about 5,000 artillery shells per day. The Russians, 10 times more. A French battalion was forced to retreat from the Kharkiv region this month due to the lack of heavy weapons, especially long-range ones. They need help now, because without it they may not last until winter. And even without weapons, you might ask, would Ukrainians really be able to dislock Russians? Is it moral to send arms to a country you don't think stands a chance of winning? I would reply with another question. When Putin first invaded, how long did you think it would be until Kyiv fell? Two days? Perhaps four? Ukraine's soldiers and its people have amazed the world before, with the right kit we can do so again. I have felt Britain perhaps understand Ukraine better because it once fought alone against the odds, for reasons summed up by a prime minister who explained things well. You may have to fight when there is no hope of victory, Winston Churchill said, because it's better to perish than live as slaves. But for Ukraine, there is every hope of victory if we get enough help. So it's for my family, as well as for my country, that they hope this fight continues until the invader is repelled. As years of Putin's war have taught us, there is really no alternative. That was Svetlana Morinets. Next, it's Matthew Paris. 
One is not usually surprised by opinions volunteered to parliamentary hopefuls by voters on whose doors the candidate has knocked, but last week, dropping in on the Tiverton and Honiton by-election, I was taken aback by a subject that came up a number of times. It seemed so relatively unimportant. The door-knocker in this case was Richard Ford, the Liberal Democrat candidate in a safe Conservative seat that looks in imminent danger of falling to his party. I was following him around as he canvassed in the Devon town of Honiton. You may know by the time you read this whether the Conservatives did cling on, but you don't need reminding that they were up against it. I should say at once that my sample of opinion was minuscule. I had perhaps an hour with Mr Ford, and I mostly heard what one would expect. Almost everyone was out of love with Boris Johnson, but despite him, there were still some who were thinking of voting Conservative. So far, so predictable. Though, predictably too, Mr Johnson's stance on Ukraine was generally approved. Cost of living came up, of course. Brexit no longer seemed a big issue. Keir Starmer was never mentioned, and the thought was expressed that levelling up ought to be applied to the West Country, not just the Midlands and the North of England. None of this was surprising. What was, was that the Prime Minister's wife seemed to be an issue. Who did she think she was? Should an unelected person wield the influence she did? How much power did she have over government policy? Oughtn't we to be told? That sort of thing. It's perhaps to Carrie Johnson's credit that she has already carved herself a name as an influencer, and voters do have some sense of what she thinks important. Green policies, the plight of endangered species, environmental threats. But still I found myself suppressing an urge to join the conversation and spring to her defence. I do not know Mrs Johnson at all. I don't think I've even met her. I know she's a friend of the interior designer Lulu Little, and Miss Little's a big supporter of the Wild Camels Protection Foundation, and so am I, and that's my closest link to Carrie, a positive one. But all this is beside the point, which is that we seem to have it in for Prime Minister's wives. We give them an often rotten time. And that's mean, unjust, and a tiny bit misogynistic. Why shouldn't Mrs J have ideas about the environment? Why shouldn't she express alarm over global warming? And, and why shouldn't she urge her opinions on Mr J? He doesn't have to take any notice. And if he chooses to be compliant for the sake of a quiet life, that would be a weakness in him, not a fault in her. It appears that influence by a male spouse over his female partner is considered unexceptional. We joked about Dennis Thatcher... But when it's the other way round, it's seen as somehow sinister. Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth is evidence that suspicion of undeclared female influence in a marriage runs deep and ancient in our culture. Feminists might put it down to male contempt for women, but I wonder whether it might be male fear of women. Eleanor Roosevelt had to put up with this all her life, and indeed FDR was almost certainly influenced by his wife, and a good thing too. But it does seem, even today, that a PM's wife has to choose between being seen as, one, a boring house mouse, two, too independent and neglectful of her husband's need for support in the poor lamb's lonely life, or three, a scheming minx, twisting our apparent leader round her little finger, or all three. 
One incident stands out in my memory as being, though in itself, trivial, an injustice for which those who gave media wings to the image and those who lapped it up should still feel a bit ashamed. Around 8am on the morning after Labour's 1997 general election victory, flowers were delivered to the Blair's Islington front door, probably only a couple of hours after the couple had laid their heads down to sleep. And that's all, really, except that Cherie opened the door to the courier and in the second while she stood there, hovering media photographers managed to snap and video her in a nightie, looking as dishevelled as you or I would in those circumstances. Ha, ha, ha. This marked the beginning of ten years in which the print media seemed uneasy about Cherie Blair, not quite knowing what to make of a conspicuously successful lawyer who was also rather left-wing, and united only in the vague suspicion that she was some kind of lefty battle-axe. Why are men never battle-axes? Pouring socialist poison into her mildly unideological husband's ear. Remarks caught off camera were outbursts. Any indication that she had sharp-edged convictions was seized upon, and such minor blunders as would befall anyone trying to juggle a distinguished legal career, four children, interests and pursuits of her own, and a husband who was Prime Minister, were turned into big stories. Cherie Blair's mistake, perhaps, was being human, and I'm not, I think, oversensitive in concluding that she caught the force of a political media finding it hard to get a handle on her husband, and so slipping easily into the ready-made narrative of husband on stage, wife in the wings. Carrie Johnson, too, makes an easier target than her Teflon husband. Cherchez la femme. I don't share Mrs Johnson's taste in wallpaper, but Mr J could have said no. I do share her interest in the future of the planet, and I'm sorry he does not seem to have said no. Whether I'd like her if I knew her, I have no idea. Maybe not. But I dislike our culture's predilection for seeing something threatening in a Prime Minister's wife with a mind of her own. So carry on, Carrie. That was Matthew Paris. Next, Islan Shriver. Check out these hyperventilating headlines from last week. What the Fed's largest interest rate hike in decades means for you. PBS.org Federal Reserve interest rate hike opens new era for economy. Washington Post The Fed delivers biggest rate hike in decades to fight inflation. National Public Radio Fed goes for inflation's jugular with 75 basis point rate hike. Schwab. While it's true that the U.S. Federal Reserve has not hiked its funds rate by 0.75 percentage points in one go since 1994, the figure prominently missing from those bug-eyed bulletins, and bizarrely unmentioned in all the television news coverage of this ostensibly bold move that I encountered, is what the Fed raised its interest rate to. A miserable 1.5%. In the classical economics that former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker applied to subdue runaway inflation with such success in the 1980s, going for inflation's jugular 
entails hiking interest rates above the rate of inflation. Thus, after American inflation was pushing a stonking 15% in 1980, Volcker ratcheted interest rates to 22%. Grim, if you needed a mortgage. Still, that's what genuine determination to shove the beast back in its cage looks like. Think Episode 7 of this season's Stranger Things. Flaming torches, axes, pikes, and spears against, who'd have known the Duffer brothers were amateur economists, a truly ugly-ass monster. In May, U.S. annual inflation hit 8.6%. According to the Volcker model, the Fed should be aiming for a target rate of at least 12%. So, what does our brave current Fed have planned? Interest rates may positively hurtle to 3.4% by the end of this year and reach a giddy vertiginous zenith of 3.75% next year before cruising back down to 2.5%. Job done. Inflation safely in its cage at barely over 2%. God back in his heaven and all well with the world. As John McEnroe would say, you cannot be serious. (laughs) Well, they're not serious. Because the Fed is fighting the Duffer Brothers monster with a toothpick. Other central banks' ordinance is even more pathetic With UK inflation hitting 9%, the Bank of England's interest rate is still a derisory 1.25%. Worse, with Eurozone inflation equally horrific, the European Central Bank's rate remains a negative 0.5%. But ooh, ooh, the bank announced in July, after not having raised its rate for 11 years, the ECB is going to jack up its rate by a gargantuan 0.25 percentage points, which will still leave the rate negative, as if Europeans need any help with getting their money to evaporate. But never fear. By September, the ECB rate is expected to soar all the way to zero. Regarding inflation, the real motto of Western central banks seems to echo what lockdown skeptics were accused of secretly advocating during COVID. Let it rip. Global indebtedness is more than three times global GDP. Who can pay even weenie interest on $300 trillion? As for why inflation is surging, Let's skip blaming Putin, blame self-defeating Western-wide energy policies instead. Or supply chain gridlock, blame self-defeating Western-wide COVID lockdowns instead. And point the finger at the freaking obvious. Profligate government spending and central banks' grotesque expansion of the money supply. Hint. Related. Behold, modern monetary theory, 
which supposes governments that control their own currencies, can concoct money from thin air without limit and not suffer any disagreeable consequences. Turns out to be just as stupid as it sounds. But the satisfaction for us classicists is thin gruel. Having been right all along doesn't keep our savings from rotting, too. It's often said that inflation is a tax, but it's worse than that. It's theft, because you haven't even got the farcically incidental governmental services that your taxes supposedly buy to show for your forfeiture. Inflation is a violation of contract between the citizenry and the state. When inflation rates rise high enough, such rank betrayal invites what politicians euphemistically call social unrest, and I call collapse. See Indonesia. If you work for a living, you do so in good faith that you trade your labor and your time, your precious time, the only genuine hard currency of your life, for a medium that has an identifiable value and can be exchanged for the goods and services you need. Accordingly, people who have earned their savings regard their money as wholesome money, as real money, because it represents all that work, and the work was real. Why would you exchange real work for fake money that doesn't buy anything? For earners, money is hard to come by and painful to relinquish. For earners, money is meaningful. Yet all this time, and especially in the past 20 years, there has been a shadow world, an upside-down world, to maintain our Stranger Things theme, in which money is a toy. Vast sums, easy come and easy go. For folks in the finance industry, money is an abstraction. It doesn't correspond to effort and time. It's numbers, like those columns of digits on Scrabble scorekeeping cards that hardly matter once the game is finished. The same can be said of central bankers. They can conjure trillions by tapping a few keys. It's not especially exhausting. Unfortunately, the toy money these people play with messes with your seemingly real money, your meaningful money, and has the capacity to turn all that work to ash. When inflation takes off, <laughs> this is not some act of nature, today's inflation, the direct result of particular decisions by people in power, was perfectly predictable, and plenty of proper economists, besides my dilettante self, did indeed predict it. You earners have been had. You've been lied to. Your trust has been taken advantage of. Your naivete exposed. The joke is on you. Your effort has been irretrievably expended. Your time is gone forever. And you're left with a big ha-ha in return. 
as if a burglar has cleaned out the valuables from your private safe and mockingly left behind a wilted gardenia from your own garden. That was Lionel Shriver. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.